Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that discusses all things jihad in the crazy world that we live in. Um, just because there's a war in Ukraine and the West wanted to pivot to China and now seems to have to pivot to Europe, the jihad is still ongoing. Um, it's a it's a global conflict. It's a call, uh, the, uh, the it's occurring across multiple multiple theaters. And today we're going to discuss the situation in Israel um, and the Palestinian territories. A lot of a lot has been happening over the last several months. Uh, violence. Uh, I, I think I would maybe I'm wrong to say this, but it seems to be a unique or a different brand of violence that's occurring inside of Israel. These individual attacks that are being carried out by various individuals who aren't necessarily related to the all to the same group. And uh, most recently, we had a reporter from Al Jazeera. Her name is Shireen Abu Akleh. She was killed um, in the town of Janine. Uh, apparently, she was shot in the head during a firefight. So we're going to discuss that first and then discuss this uh, ongoing violence that's uh, happening inside of Israel. And today's guests are Jonathan Shanzer, uh, my friend. He's a senior vice president for research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And uh, Joe Trusman, he's a researcher at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and a contributor to FDD's uh, Long War Journal. Uh, Joe's been doing a fantastic job uh, tracking the conflict in Israel and the Palestinian territories uh, over the last couple of years. Great addition to the Long War Journal. Gentlemen, uh, welcome to Generation Jihad. Thanks, Bill. Thank you for having me, Bill. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today, guys. And uh, Joe just recently returned from Israel, by the way. Um, but so first, we're going to talk about the uh, the killing of the Al Jazeera reporter. Um, certainly tragic. Um, having done embeds myself, embedding in war zones in both Iraq and Afghanistan, any time you are in a situation like that, it's you have to expect the worst. Um, you have to be prepared for the worst. And uh, sadly, the worst has happened to this reporter. Uh, Joe, give us a little bit of background. Tell us, break down what happened here. What do we know and what don't we know about what happened here in, in Janine? Right. So the, the, uh, the IDF was conducting a counterterrorism operation uh, Wednesday uh, morning. And uh, they were looking for Islamic Jihad. Uh, rather militants uh, may have been uh, belonging to Islamic Jihad or Hamas. And uh, as it has been happening over the past, at least well, for, for many years now, but uh, especially over the last couple of years, at least a year and a half, uh, there have been uh, a firefight broke out between militants and the IDF. Uh, what happened, we're not 100% sure, but a, uh, the Al Jazeera journalist, Shireen Abu Akhle, was was shot and killed in this firefight, there's also plenty of um, video evidence, especially from on social media, showing uh, militants firing at what we presume to be at IDF, at the IDF soldiers. Also, the um, the group Palestinian Islamic Jihad published video of the shooting uh, of them shooting at IDF forces or at IDF troops as well. So there's there's evidence of a firefight there. We're just unsure exactly what happened as far as who who's culpable here. 
though we know there's a lot of violence, there's been a lot of violence in Janine for many years, many, many years, but uh, it's it's something that we've tracked, especially at a long war journal over the past year and a half, uh, it's the uptick in violence there. And the, the shootings isn't necessarily new. Uh, of course, the, the killing of, of the, the journalist is. So unfortunately, I'm not surprised this happened. It's it's a very violent place. We just don't know who's culpable here. John, um, we've seen this sort of thing before. Um, we, you know, and you know, the killing of a journalist that is certainly something that is going to be manipulated uh, in this case by the Palestinian militants, particularly. Um, they're going to brand the Israelis as being murderers here. You know, the allegations start flying. Truth is often the first casualty. I'm going to go back 15 years ago um, uh, and when WikiLeaks, I, I, well, it's probably more like 13 years now, if I'm correct. WikiLeaks released a video of a firefight in New Baghdad between U.S. forces and uh, the Mahdi army, uh, which is uh, backed by the Iranian state and a Reuters reporter and another journalist were killed in this firefight. Um, when they released it, you know, they gave it a sensationalist title, the video collateral murder. And, but when you actually analyzed what happened, you had a reporters embedded, basically embedded with a, with a militant group, with the, with the Mahdi army as it was battling us forces and essentially caught in the crossfire. When you look at the video, you analyze it. And I mean, look, I don't know what happened. I think it's highly unlikely, particularly given the uh, uh, the sensitivity that the Israelis deal with when it comes to the media. It's highly unlikely that they tar- intentionally target a journalist here. If she was even shot by the Israelis, and if she wasn't shot by Palestinians, but what what is your t- what do you think about this, John? What do you, how are how are the Palestinians going to use this incident to their advantage? And do you think we'll ever find out what actually happened in this incident? Yeah, look, you raise a lot of good questions. First, I'll just say that this whole affair reminds me of another one that took place in the year 2000. Um, this I'm referring to the Mohammed al-Dora affair, where there was a young kid and his father that were caught in the crossfire um, uh, of a gun battle um, uh, between Palestinian militants and Israeli soldiers. And uh, the, the, the child was killed and it took years uh, to get to what we could even say is a kernel of truth here. Um, it was a battle uh, for scraps of evidence. And eventually, I think, you know, th- there were a-, a handful of his of Israelis that I think were able to prove, maybe not beyond a shadow of a doubt, but were at least able to show alternative facts um, that at least uh, indicated that this may not have been the IDF. In fact, that it almost certainly was um, Palestinian militants that were responsible. But, you know, this went on for years. Uh, and this was the beginning of the Intifada. It was actually one of the uh, moments that probably fanned the flames of that of the Intifada um, back in 2000. So um, we've seen things like this before. There are also stories about, you know, intentional Israeli massacres in the, um, you know, in the throes of, of conflict, um, you know, dating back to 1948, dating back to the beginning of the Arab-Israeli conflict as we know it. Um, these are the stories, they are the folklore of uh, the Palestinian nationalist movement. I think we should expect them to continue um, in, in this um, sort of, uh, in this tradition. 
let's call it. Now, a couple of things that I'll just note about what's going on here right now. One is um, that if her death was the result of a chaotic gunfight, and I think from all indications, based on what Joe's seen, what I've seen, that is what happened. It was a gunfight. Then, you know, I think it's really hard to ascribe intent that these are things that happen, unfortunately, during the course of war. And that is, you know, we may not call this a war at this moment, but let's just say that these kinds of battles, they are indicative of war and journalists and civilians are often caught in the crossfire and it's a terrible thing. And I think, you know, I'd like to learn more. Now, in terms of learning more, there should be an investigation that is conducted jointly with the Palestinian Authority and with Israel. It is not something that the Palestinian Authority has agreed to, at least not yet. Uh, in fact, what we're hearing out of the Palestinian Authority is that they want to take this case to the ICC, to the International Criminal Court. So rather than letting the IDF and the Palestinians figure out what happened, to look at the at the at the bullet itself, to look at the ballistics, and to eventually get to the truth here, they want to escalate this immediately to the international, you know. Uh, community. They want to make this a UN ICC issue, which of course puts the advantage of the Palestinian court. This is where they have that home foreign advantage and have had for years. Now, a couple of other things that I would note. One is Janine and Joe did mention this. It's a violent place. It has been for the last 20 years. I can recall gun battles that were taking place during the second intifada um, where you know Israel essentially had to pioneer a new way of warfare going house to house, urban warfare, very messy stuff. It actually looked a lot like what eventually we saw American forces were doing in Iraq. But this is not an easy brand of warfare. And it was something that was, I think, unique to Janine early on. Um, but the, I think the fact remains is that Janine has never actually been brought to a place where law and order prevails. This is a challenge for both Israel and the Palestinians, and I would hope that a moment like this would actually be a reminder that it's time to start working together to bring some order to the West Bank um, and, and to its most lawless place or one of its most lawless places. Um, Al Jazeera, probably important to just mention this for a second, but um, this is a media outlet that has been for years fanning the flames of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. They are constantly vilifying Israel. It is part of the channel's raison d'etre, if you will. Um, I'm not saying that um, the journalist in question was there for any other reason but to report on the conflict, and it's certainly not her fault in the least. We should be very clear that she was struck down. I would not want to go that far at all. What I would say, though, is that Al Jazeera needs to be very careful about what it reports moving forward because they still don't have the facts. If they start to engage again in fanning the flames of this conflict, it would be highly irresponsible and um, unfortunately very fitting for this organization. Um, just a reminder, this is a TV channel that's owned by the government of Qatar, which is a sponsor of Hamas, a, a financial sponsor of Hamas. And we just need to bear all that in mind. And then, you know, the last thing is just that, and I think you 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 said so, Bill, is that truth is often the first casualty in these sorts of events. Um, and in in this case, in the Palestinian-Israeli arena, it's almost always that Israel is you know blamed first, and then facts come later. It's unfortunate that this is you know the reality, 
I think the Israelis are up against it. Um, they're going to need to move quickly if they're going to try to head off um, a story that looks like it's going to head in the wrong direction for quite some time. I don't know what they can do, quite honestly. If they can't get a hold of the evidence, then, you know, and, and that's exactly what the Palestinian Authority, I think, wants. It puts the Israelis on the defensive. But, um, you know, they continue to lose that information warfare battle. It's, it's just a, um, it's a staple now of this conflict the Israelis failing um, time and again. And it is on them to try to figure out how to get around this, whether it's through geolocation of social media, um, you know, material, whether it's, you know, uh, pushing harder through international channels to get that bullet, to get the ballistics, but they're going to need to do something if they don't want this to turn into the next Mohammed al-Dura blood libel. Yeah, John, you, you brought up an, an excellent point. Look, at first, I think the Palestinians' unwillingness to conduct a joint investigation is telling. I mean, that, that really tells you everything you need to know. The, the evidence is is at this point is all tainted. I mean, there's there's can't be a chain of evidence if the Palestinians aren't willing. You know, if the Israelis are willing to conduct a joint investigation, the Palestinians aren't. You know, if they're using and without a doubt, they're using this for political purposes. Uh, there's just there's no way the Israelis can win. They they constantly lose these battles in the uh, in the press in the the for the battles for public opinion because of the narrative of of what media organizations like Al Jazeera put out there and and it's you know the irony that you mentioned you know that Al Jazeera fans the flames of a conflict that ultimately leads to the death of its of one of its reporters. And then we'll continue to fan the flames and they don't see that that's an actual problem. They just, it's, this is one, one of the conflict, look, the United States dealt with problems with the media in Iraq, you know, and in Afghanistan, but we've never encountered anything like this where they where it's completely isolated and un, um, unable to gain an inch in the, in the battle and the, in the information space. So I just I always feel bad for the Israelis when it comes to, comes to this. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll just say this, and and I want to hear Joe's thoughts too. But um, yeah, absolutely, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether Israel's responsible for this or not. You know, I mean, it'd be interesting to to learn this. Um, even if it was an Israeli bullet, um, it's the result of a firefight, and it John, was. Can I interject really quick? If yeah. it was a Palestinian bullet, the very likelihood is it was the result of a firefight. Exactly. Well. I mean, exactly. Exactly. Right. So, uh, you know, when when you say that there was a firefight and there are bullets flying and you have a a noncombatant that's killed, it's a terrible thing. Um, But it is what happens in um, in urban warfare. Right. You have stray bullets. it, It but the idea that you would say that this is a murder. Right. You don't see the Israelis pointing fingers and saying, "Okay, well, this was a murder on the part of the Palestinians. They're saying, "Okay, well, this, you know, um, this could have been a Palestinian gunman. It could have been an Israeli gunman. Let's let's see what the evidence bears out. And the fact that they don't want this to go that far, I think, is really telling. They are they want to milk this right now and not just not just pitch, not just Palestinian Islamic Jihad, not just Hamas. But the Palestinian uh, Authority itself wants to milk this. They want this to be a crisis. And that's what's what's really most frustrating here is it's like things haven't changed in 70 years. 
Yeah, you know, the truth will be the first, the last, and the only casualty here. Uh, unfortunately, go ahead, Joe. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're fine. Um, no, you guys are absolutely right. Uh, something I noticed was pretty interesting: the uh, Hamas Hamas banners, and, and actually from other groups as well, of uh, mourning the loss of the journalists. Uh, it, it's just strange seeing that Hamas doesn't care about journalists. They, they they're just using it. They're riding the media wave, basically. From from what I'm seeing, I'm seeing that from from the groups and also, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, the, the Palestinian Authority doesn't care about journalists either. <laughs> no, um, right? <laughs> I mean, that. you know, the, the the way that they have treated a number of journalists that have exposed you know corruption within the Palestinian Authority. It's not like there's a great love affair there either. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely right. And another thing about the Al Jazeera, and you touched on this as well, um, The if Hamas, uh, especially in Gaza, they want to get something out to, to the to, to the general, to the broader public, the Arab public, uh, and especially in the region, they go to Al Jazeera. What I mean by that is publications. Many publications from their so-called military wing, which isn't a military wing, it's, they're all the same. It's all the same. Uh, they go to Al Jazeera to publish it. They get the exclusive. So there, there's there's a uh, there's a connection there between them. So I just caution people when uh, folks when they're hearing things about from Al Jazeera or information from Al Jazeera about this that they have a connection to Hamas. Uh, so I think that's important to know. Yeah, I'm going to make a real quick point here on Al Jazeera. I rely on Al Jazeera actually does good reporting when it comes when in Iraq and in Afghanistan, but when it comes to looking at the situation in Israel slash Palestinian territories, I just can't trust it. And that makes it very difficult. It's to, to follow, you know, to to trust the the, you know, I could trust it here in certain places and not in others. That's really the bias that exists against Israel from from uh, Al Jazeera is just, it's staggering. It, it um, is. I know, like, yeah. I, you know, I'll just say that it's also horrible reporting when it comes to Saudi Arabia. I mean, you actually can, um, yes. you can see the rivalry between Qatar and, yes. and Saudi seep into that coverage. There are stories that they do well. Um, but by the way, I mean, I'll just say here, um, you guys may remember this, but a couple of years ago, a, an undercover journalist, came to the office and recorded me here at FDD without my knowledge in an attempt to do a gotcha operation against me. And this is a foreign government that is trying to do this in on American soil um, for, for really for just um, the purposes of information operations. This is what they are known for. And it's just hard to um, separate that out from what we're seeing now, tragic as it is. Um, and again, you don't wish this on any journalist that's trying to do their job, but it's just really hard to separate out Al Jazeera's um, you know, legitimate reporting from its activist reporting, especially in this realm. Yeah, I, I've used Al Jazeera to track military operations in both Iraq with the surge and in Afghanistan with the Taliban takeover territory. It's been highly accurate, tracked with other sources, track with local Afghan sources, with what the Taliban was saying, with even with, with the Afghan government. So, you know, it's but you know, when they put their politics, when they put their agenda in in front, Al Jazeera goes all in on the side that they that they have their interest on. And so you just have to uh, one of the hardest things about using open source reporting is to to know 
when your source is tainted in a certain area. But it doesn't mean all of Al Jazeera is something worthy of discarding. So that's not a defense of, of anything here. It's just a sort of one of the anomalies that I encounter while uh, reading, uh, you know, various news sources. So, um, all right, gentlemen, you ready? Well, let's move on to the, unless you have anything else to add here, um, let's move on to the recent attacks in Israel. There for what I would say about two months, we Israel's uh, had a spike in these attacks um, from what one or two were claimed by the Islamic State or Islamic State supporters. A couple were unclaimed. Joe uh, Trusman's been reporting on these at the at FD's Long War Journal. Uh, Joe, give us an update. What has happened since the last time you joined us on the podcast? I want to say it was about a month ago. Um, these attacks have been ongoing. Have you noticed any uh, trends? Uh, um, what, what are we seeing? Right. For a while there, it's got after we spoke, things became. I got a got a sense of calm for a few for at least a, as far as terrorist attacks. There was, uh, of course, there was things going on at, at Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is a separate issue. But as far as terrorist attacks, there there was some calm there. Unfortunately, a couple of weeks ago, on, on April 28th, two Palestinians from, uh, from the West Bank drove up to a security post in front of a, a settlement, the uh, settlement of Ariel in the West Bank. They shot and killed one of the, a security guard there. The next day, they were captured by Israeli security forces. One thing to note on this particular attack, the April 28th attack, several days, I think it was on May 2nd, Hamas published a statement saying they were claiming full responsibility for the attack, which is kind of strange, to be honest with you. The It was just a statement. There weren't any they didn't back it up with evidence. Generally, if they're going, if they claim an attack, they they like to post videos. They show uh, the, the attackers dressed in, you know, the Hamas uh, military fatigues, things like that. They didn't do it with this. This was just a statement. That's it. So it just it was very dubious. I didn't think I didn't think to be honest with you. I don't think it's legitimate. I think they were just using the media attention with the, all the media attention going on. Rather, I think they were claiming the attack just to boost their image. So that was April twenty eighth. The next one uh, was May fifth. Uh, this attack happened in Elad, which is a ultra Jewish ultra orthodox city near Tel Aviv. Two attackers from the West Bank. Again, uh, they were driven to Elad uh, by one of, what ended up being one of their victims. Uh, they killed the driver. And then after, I think they, they waited a couple hours, then they went on their attack with uh, axes and I think an axe and a knife. And they killed three people and injured others. This, this attack was particularly particularly brutal just because of the, you know, the weapons that were used. Of course, all the terrorist attacks are brutal, but this one was was on another level. Uh, both, uh, both, like I said, both suspects were from the West Bank, uh, yeah, but in this case, nobody um, really legitimately claimed uh, them as a. Um, they weren't. They weren't suspect, suspected members of uh, of a militant group, though there was a claim by uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad members that that, that they were uh, they were members of Islamic Jihad. The attackers were members of Islamic Jihad, and uh, it was carried out in their name. But uh, it, that's another thing, another one that I don't think is, is is legitimate. Another claim I don't think is legitimate. It was just being used to boost the image of the uh, of the of the group. 
Joe, would you say so you think these are just literally those, uh, you know, self-directed attacks then? Or, you know, I just find it, find it odd that the, that the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas are sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel claiming attacks that they may not have done. I, it's just things seem to be on their turned on their head here. Uh, but, you know, in, in, in this conflict, anything's possible. Right. It's kind of, it, it is a little strange seeing this. Uh, I, I think it's just the, the militant groups are, are, are feeling, uh, they're seeing the, all the media attention this is getting. And, uh, the, uh, they're, they're using this to, to, like I said, to, to boost their image. I mean, they can claim the attack. And what happens when they claim the attack, the Israeli news, they pick up on it pretty quickly and they publish it and it, it makes them look good. And then other, uh, other networks, uh, regional networks, they, they pick that up too. And so, um, it works in their favor and they don't really have to, it's almost like people will just take them for the word. And so analysts like Free us, publicity. right, right. So analysts like us that, uh, or observers uh, that really look into it. Um, yeah, we'll see that they're, they're making it up, but most people, they don't, they don't care. You know, they hear it. Oh, okay. Palestinian Islamic Jihad did it. That's okay. And you know, something else that comes to mind as well. Um, it's important here and we can talk about it after more, but, uh, it's the incitement. You mentioned the incitement uh, that's going on here uh, from by, by Hamas and other Palestinian militant groups, uh, for example, and, and this relates to the uh, the the last attack I just spoke about, the attack in Elad. So a few days uh, before the attack in Elad, Hamas uh, Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar was uh, he published or rather he gave a speech in Gaza. He made all sorts of claims and statements, but in particular, he encouraged, you can almost say he directed uh, the uh, for uh, more attacks, incited more attacks, and specifically called out Israeli Arabs to use guns, to prepare guns, knives, and axes uh, to, to, attack, uh, to attack civilians, to attack Israelis. And then a few days later, look what happened. Uh, an attack occurred against uh, on these civilians using knives and axes. So it's 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 tough to not see a connection there between what Sinwar said and the attackers using the weapons that that, that Sinwar mentioned. So I think that that's important to know. John, any any comments on this uh, violence and also additionally both of you gentlemen were uh, have been in t- to Israel in the last couple of months. Uh, just share with us what your experiences are there, uh, what you've seen um, how is the Israeli population uh, reacting to this? How are things changing? Is it are they becoming steeled to this, angered? But yeah, John, first you first. Yeah, look, um, a, cu- a couple of quick observations here. One is um, I don't buy this Islamic State stuff at all. I just don't. I just don't see it. Um, uh, I had a really interesting conversation with a senior person from um, from the Prime Minister's office. And um, the 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 there was a candid remark that has stuck with me, which is, um, you know, that they were just not aware of sufficient Islamic State activity in the West Bank, and that there was something of a uh, an intelligence black hole when those first attacks um, attributed to the Islamic State came out, and it just stuck with me because it just didn't seem right in the first place. Where did this come? It came out of the blue. Um, and then since then, what we've seen are a, a, a number of other attacks seemingly coordinated in some way. 
Now, what I've heard since then has actually been really interesting. And this actually tracks back to a um, uh, a chapter in my book, a book, by the way, where you guys are both mentioned. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and and um, but n- not on, on this issue in particular. And, and actually, what I'm referring to is there were attacks during last year's war, which, by the way, was happening this time last year. Um, and there were attacks that were coming out of Lebanon. And as those rockets were firing, there was a um, one report, which has since been confirmed by some pretty senior Israelis that I've talked to, and it's been published as well. There was some kind of a nerve center um, in Beirut run by the Iranians with help from Hezbollah and Hamas. And the goal was to bring people out into the streets to engage in asymmetric violence against Israeli authorities, against the, the civilian population, against the police, against the IDF. Um, and you know, we hadn't seen anything for several months after those initial reports, after you know, people were in fact going out into the streets during the war itself and, and really contributing to the chaos at the time. I've heard since now that Israelis believe that this nerve center may actually be involved in coordinating or pushing others out uh, to attack Israel. And so this, you know, this attribution to the Islamic State, I don't know if I buy it. I don't know if I buy the idea that Hamas itself is responsible for any of this. Yeah, I know that Yahya Sinwar came out and said that people should take axes and go out in the streets. I think that this may be, um, this could track back. To Beirut, I've, I mean, I joked on Twitter a couple of months ago that this could be the only functioning institution in Lebanon right now. Um, you know, as as we know, the the, the country is sort of falling apart. But you know, look, it's going to be up to the Israelis to ultimately determine um, where all of this is coming from, who's driving it. Is it just spontaneous people coming out and and, and carrying out these attacks, or is there something a little bit more coordinated? We won't know. Um, at least not at the moment. What I'll just say, just to conclude here, is what's really interesting to me is that you're not seeing Hamas rockets um, at the same time as these other attacks. So in other words, Hamas seems fine allowing others to go out and carry out these brutal acts of violence kind of uh, on a tactical level, but they are not interested in another full-blown rocket war and exchange of hostilities with Israel and, and so my assessment is, and I think this is where most Israelis are right now um, on the streets, but also in the security establishment, this could be the new normal for quite some time. We could just see these occasional, it won't be an intifada where it looks like it's a steady stream of this stuff, but really just sort of occasional attacks where you know militants are just trying to make sure that there is no calm, that there is this continued state of tension where the Israelis will, you know, the Israeli people will constantly, constantly be looking behind their backs, making sure that they're safe. They want this um, constant state of tension to persist. Yeah, All right, Joe, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, I think that's a great point, or the great points John just made. I think uh, you know, there's, I think that's something else I want to bring up is the what I noticed, especially after the Alad attack and. Uh, Sinwar's uh, message or speech, it was the ang- I, I noticed there's anger uh, 
you know, that's been obviously anger has been building up all these attacks since, you know, late uh, since March. Uh, but especially after the Alad attack, I felt that there was more anger from the, the Israeli public. And you saw it on the news, too, especially Israeli news, where there are calls to uh, assassinate Sinwar and some other Hamas leaders. And maybe that may be a, it's understandable, maybe a, probably a, maybe a knee-jerk reaction to to what was going on. But uh, this is, you know, these this is something that really has to be thought thought about. Uh, you know, assassinating a leader of Hamas is, is, is really a big deal. And we don't know. We have to think about it. What's going to happen? What will, will if you assassinate, let's say, if uh, Yahya Sinwar is assassinated, rather, what will that, what will that achieve? Will the terrorism stop? Probably not. Uh, the, the, I'll give, let me give you an example. So a couple of years ago, several years ago, there was this Islamic Jihad, past Islamic Jihad commander. He was a real pain in the rear for the Israelis, Bahabu uh, Alata. He was an Islamic Jihad commander in Gaza, and he was, uh, we call him a party crasher. And what I mean by that is that during the 2018-2019 Gaza war, or conflicts rather, there's several small conflicts uh, during that span of time, he would launch rockets uh, or uh, execute attacks, or have his have his uh, uh, have his militants execute attacks at the Gaza border in order to disrupt any Israeli Hamas uh, uh, peace understandings. And one day, uh, uh, al Atta decided that he would uh, launch. He would he would launch rockets or have his men launch rockets at one of the cities in southern Israel. I think I can't remember if it was Ashdod or Ashkelon, uh, where uh, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was visiting at the time, d- doing a speech for uh, political. It was a political rally, uh, so he timed the the speech during uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's speech uh, with the the rocket launch, and it uh, it caught. The uh, the prime minister in during his rally, uh, uh, there was a red alert issued, and this was it was all the cameras were there, and you could see we saw that uh, it was a great embarrassment for the for the prime minister because he had to exit the stage during this rocket attack. So that kind of was like the straw that that broke the camel's back, you could say that um, the uh, that really got the attention of the Israelis, and what happened several months later. The uh, Bahabu Alata was killed in a targeted. It was was killed in a, in a targeted operation, but the attack, the rocket attacks, didn't stop for some time, for a little while there, and uh, it, it took some time, and then eventually it did, and then now that we see over the last at least six months, generally we've seen a lot of peace there. So in that instance, yeah, it worked. Not that I'm advocating for uh, this type of action, but uh, it just shows that. Um, you know, we, we have to really think about what will happen if a entity, uh, if someone goes after, or if the Israelis go after a, a leader, because it doesn't always work out like that. Uh, it doesn't always uh, end up good for, in the long term for the Israelis. Uh, I'm going to share a, a really quick example, yeah, yeah, if yeah, yeah. you don't mind. This is as someone who tracked targeted killing for the last two decades, particularly in Afghanistan and Pakistan, but elsewhere. Um, the movement in the Taliban in Pakistan, after the Haki Mullah Massoud, it was their second emir, was killed. Um, a guy named Mullah Fazula uh, took over. His nickname is Mullah Radio. This guy was a psychopath who was against polio vaccinations and ranted on the radio. Um, the TT, the movement of Taliban in Pakistan made a horrible decision in pointing him the leader 
Um, the group fragmented under his leadership. And yet the U.S. military and intelligence decided it was a good idea to kill him inside of Afghanistan. Um, they could have kept him in, in line because the, the group uh, fragmented. It was, it was a mess. Keeping him al- alive was actually better than killing him. And I, w- I was talking to people at the time advising as such, but they killed him. Uh, he was succeeded by a, a guy named uh, Nor Wali Massoud, who is an effective leader who's reunited the TTP, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. It's now, a, again, an effective united organization that is increasing attacks and is uh, killing a lot of Pakistani soldiers and police and trying to work its way back to the point where it took over territory. So I'm all for taking out these guys. They're bad guys. You have to do it. There's a way it needs to be done. You need to do it quickly. You need to do it. You need to kill leaders in succession. There needs to be a point to it. And you need to kill the right people. Just killing someone out of anger, out of revenge, uh, things like that doesn't always work out the way you hope it works. Um, I think this I think this is a lesson the Israelis have learned. Uh, I, I, I've noticed them being over the years be more judicious in its in its targeted strikes and particularly when it's targeting the IRGC and Hezbollah and Syria and Lebanon. I, that's just my opinion on that. I'd, I'd be curious to see what you gentlemen think about that. Look, I, I think it's a fascinating conversation. I, I will say that um, the Israelis have had actually real success um, over the years in targeting um, a number of people. They've had a couple of botched attacks too, um, which has caused some um, some embarrassment, but Generally speaking, I'm talking about Ismail Haniya and Jordan, by the way, that that was the one where I think it was probably the greatest embarrassment. Um, but I mean, they took out a guy in the UAE a number of years ago, and it was a success. This was the guy that was procuring weapons for Hamas uh, through Iran. And um, yeah, eventually the Mossad was what um, was at least outed for having done so. But it was, I would say, ultimately a success in that it stopped um, the uh, the primary conduit who was uh, bringing weapons to the Gaza Strip from Iran, um, and it significantly disrupted. There was a campaign in 2003 that led to the killing of um, Ahmed Yassin, the founder of Hamas, as well as a number of his uh, lieutenants, people that were sort of in line for future leadership. And I would say that during that time, it, it really did disrupt Hamas's leadership structure and it created real challenges. The best stuff that I've seen from Israel's perspective are the attacks that take place when um, there's already hostilities underway. There was the attack on uh, Ahmed Jabari. If you recall, that was the 2012 conflict where once a war was underway, they targeted one of the top military leaders of Hamas in the process of an ongoing operation, which I think is probably more fitting. And, and you know, the Israelis can probably get away with that in the context of a broader conflict. But then there's also stuff that we see that happens um, kind of all over the world where, you know, uh, Hamas guys um, are are taken out in places like Malaysia, for example, where you have engineers that are working on, you know, various military projects for Hamas, um, you know, are, are slain really in, in, in the light of day um, by, you know, what we think are Mossad guys on motorcycles and then they, they ride off uh, before anyone knows what happens. But look, this is at the end of the day, what the Israelis are dealing with is, you know, what I think has been broadly described in the context of Iran is a war between wars. 
where the Israelis constantly are trying to erode the capabilities of Hamas in between conflicts, because there will be another one. And the idea of trying to sow discord, to try to create confusion among their enemy, that is Israel's ultimate goal. Um, and look, I, it's a little different than the way that the U.S. operates. Um, the, the Israelis have, I think, fewer choices. Um, and because I think the cadence of these conflicts are constantly coming up and it's Israel's homeland that's under attack, they find themselves in need of doing this. It's not pretty. Um, it's not neat. It's not clean. But it's ultimately what I think they find themselves having to do. Um, some work out better than others, but um, it's a constant campaign for them. Yeah, it's, it's it's never ending. I mean, they replace the leadership. And I agree with you, John, when you'd said, you know, during the conflicts, when there's actual live fighting, you know, 2012, the Gaza war last summer, that's when really when Israel should take the opportunity to to start whittling away the key leadership, particularly along the military side. It's a it's a smart thing to do. I've, I've watched them do this over years. I mean, look, the killing of Imad Mugnia, that was just, uh, you know, the obviously the. Hezbollah slash IRGC leader who was just a nasty individual. Um, as a, I think that disrupted the Hezbollah operations significantly for, for for some time. The Israelis are willing to take those risks. When you take risks, you're gonna you're gonna fail at times, and that's that comes with the game. But I think the and you you had noted Israel is you know it's it recognizes it's in this uh, for the long uh, haul. It has to pick and choose its spots and. Sometimes taking out a facilitator, you know, who you don't really think he's not the public face of Hamas or, or Hezbollah or some of these groups, but they're very individual, um, very important individuals who are very difficult or take, it takes time for these groups to replace. You know, one other thing I'll just note, I mean, obviously it's cleaner for, for the Israelis if they're taking out these guys when a conflict is hot, right? When there's, you know, the Israelis call it an operation, but, you know, in a real sense, it's a war, um, right? And these things happen every two or three years and, and they are potential opportunities for the Israelis to take out senior leaders. The problem is, is that these guys go underground. Um, I mean, literally they're going underground. They are, they are hanging out in places that is hard, that are harder for Israel to target. Um, they surround themselves with, um, you know, with human shields, um, we see this, by the way, not only obviously in the Hamas context or the Hezbollah context, but in that broader jihadi battle that the United States has been waging, um, that the leaders do this. They, they try to put themselves out of harm's way. And that leads to fewer opportunities for the kinds of operations that we're talking about here, which ultimately necessitates Israel to take action during times of more quiet, doing things in that sort of asymmetric way, generally probably done by the Mossad. This is um, one of the reasons why you see more of those operations taking place randomly um, at during times of quiet. Yeah. Joe, so, any any thoughts on this? Yeah, so actually something else I just forgot to for mention, and this, was, this goes back to the the, the subject we we're talking about about uh, the Israeli public's feelings. Uh, the uh, I was when I was in Israel. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was there for several weeks. I was, you know, I recall one time I was in, in Jerusalem near the Mahanehuda, uh, near the central market there in Jerusalem. And I was sitting at a cafe and I noticed while sitting there, about every 30 seconds or so, I would see a either a police officer or border police or some type of security force 
would either walk by, drive by, or on their motorcycle, or following the train. It was. I, I've been to I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to Israel several times, and I know. And to me, at least, my the sense that I got is that there was a lot more security uh, going on there. And that's obviously just because of what what's been going on over the last six weeks. Uh, something um, else uh, I got to experience was the Iron Dome. I was uh, where I was staying at wasn't I wasn't actually far from Gaza. I won't say where exactly, but it was close. And one of the nights there was the uh, what they thought, what the idea thought was a rocket attack, it ended up being just bullets. But the Iron Dome uh, missile interceptor uh, was launched, and I think it launched more than a dozen rockets uh, or interceptors, rather. And I got to I got to experience it, I got to hear it, and it was uh, very interesting because I I got the alert uh, on the phone, and then I just like, about ten seconds later, I hear pop 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 pop, you know, and it didn't occur to me it was the Iron Dome. I thought it was a, a vehicle backfiring a bunch of times, uh, very loudly in the middle of the night, and uh, that that was interesting. At least there are a couple of things that I that I at least that I noticed uh, during during my trip. And how are how are the Israeli people reacting to this? Are they they angry? Are they resigned? Are they how would you characterize that? It just you know it there. The, from the people I spoke to, there was a sense of a little bit of, I won't say they're afraid, but more like they're concerned uh, about what was going on and uh, about boarding up things like boarding, simple things like going to the market or boarding a bus or getting on the train. I, I got the sense at least, I rather than didn't get the sense, but I also was told that there was a, a bit of yeah, there the concern that there was another uh, an attack would happen. Uh, we've seen, you know, uh, John kind of touched on this before. There's been a, these these attacks before where uh, there was this one uh, a couple of years ago. It was dubbed the Knife Intifada, where uh, uh, for a period of time there there were uh, a lot of attacks uh, on Israelis with with knives. And the not that I'm not saying it's happening, that's happening now, but that the sense of, of a little bit of fear is there. And on top of that, we're seeing all these a lot of security out there. Uh, so I definitely got that sense of that when I, when I was there in, in Israel over the over those three weeks. You know, I, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll just maybe add um, but one observation. It's interesting. I mean, um, I, you know, I, I actually lived in Israel when I was a graduate student when the second intifada broke out. This is back in 2000. So, yeah, I'm a boomer, just in case anybody's wondering. Um, but but, um, you know, and I, I remember the the atmosphere of fear back then, um, you know, because explosions were happening on buses, in malls, in restaurants. And it was a regular thing. And it was, you know, the fear had really gripped Israeli society. And that went on through 2005. Um, then, you know, they were finally able to, you know, kind of put a lid on, on the violence. And since then there've been small eruptions of these campaigns. There was a car ramming campaign. There was a knifing campaign. We have what's happening now. These things happen periodically. It's cyclical. It's, it's unfortunate for the Israeli public, but I have to say they're generally accustomed to this stuff. Now, maybe there's a heightened sense of alert, but people refuse to allow this stuff to get in their way, it's like almost a sense of defiance that you hear from 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 the Israelis as as they talk about this. But what's really interesting right now, and and it's just you can see it, um, you know, just in the last day or two on Twitter, which is 
you know, they're not as outraged about, of course, they're outraged when people are killed in, in terrorist attacks. And there was these uh, two people that were killed, leaving 16 orphans as a result of, of the death of these, these two individuals. Um, and, and, and there was outrage. But the amount of outrage we see right now is Israel is being blamed for a, what, what's being described as a murder of a journalist. This is where you see the most amount of outrage, which is just really, it's interesting to watch. They, you know, it, they're, it, the message out of Israel is almost as if like, okay, we understand we're going to have these terrorist attacks and we're ready to do this, but do not ascribe, you know, murder to, uh, to us, right? That's, that's where they draw the line. They, they're willing to kind of absorb the conflict as it goes through its ups and downs, but don't dare call them murderers. And that's the interesting message that I've been picking up on social media um, over the last couple of days. And one final question, uh, gentlemen. So what's the appetite for a renewed Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, amongst the uh, surrounding countries, Arab countries, with Egypt, with Saudi Arabia, Jordan? Are, are, are they, do you think they're uh, looking, to, uh, looking for this to be over with, or are they, are they interested in stoking the flames of a new conflict? You know, I'll, I'll just say this. I'm sure, Joe, you've, you've probably got your own observations, but, you know, um, you can see the lack of interest in a lot of this from uh, the likes of Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Bahrain, the countries that engaged in the Abraham Accords. Um, and and those are holding up strong. I, I don't want to say that things have been perfect. Um, moments like these are certainly more uh, difficult for some of these Arab countries than others. Um what I'm really watching, though, right now is something that troubles me a lot, and that's Jordan. Uh, the Kingdom of Jordan is trying to assert agency uh, or more agency in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. They have a role to play in the Waqf, which is the religious authority um, that, that governs uh, the Temple Mount. But what we're seeing right now is an effort by the king and by uh, the prime minister and the foreign minister of Jordan. They're fanning the flames they're fanning the tension. They're making it worse by ascribing, you know, um, bad intentions to Israel. They're uh, vilifying Israel. I think, and ultimately, this is for public consumption back home in Jordan, because of course the population of Jordan is something like eighty percent Palestinian, maybe even more than that. The Jordanians won't see that number, but that is in fact um, the the demography over there. So. The king has very little choice but to do this if he wants to try to keep control of the streets. Um, and what what is worrying me right now is that Jordan needs Israel. It needs Israel for intelligence. It needs Israel for coordination on security. It needs Israel for, you know, even for an economic lifeline. There's a lot that's happening quietly behind the scenes that I think Jordan risks disrupting or even destroying the further they push on this narrative. And they seem right now to be the only country other than, of course, the Qataris and maybe the Turks and the Iranians that are reveling in this. Right. They, they're actually trying to make it worse. And um, I think they're playing with fire. I really do. And it's unfortunate to see that because Jordan is, of course, an important ally of the United States on many fronts, including in fighting jihadism, as you know, Bill. Um, so why they're doing this, I think it's clear, but it, I don't think it's clear right now how this is going to end well for anybody. Right. 
I, I do have, uh, I echo what John says, uh, John said, and I'm curious here, I'm actually going to turn this around on John, but uh, what do you think Jordan, what, what, what is Jordan trying to get out of all this? Uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, let's say they get more control over the Temple Mount. Is that it? What's that going to change? I mean, we saw, for example, during the, uh, the clashes at Al-Aqsa, uh, the Hamas flags, all those Hamas flags, even Palestinian Islamic Jihad flags. So it, it gave you a sense of, I don't know, that maybe they're, that it, it looked like it wasn't the Israelis or the Jordanians or the Palestinian Authority that controlled uh, the Temple Mount. It was the militant groups or Hamas. So do you think any, what's the end game here for Jordan if uh, controlling uh, the Temple or getting more control of the Temple Mount? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't know what the end game is. Yeah. I think that, that that's exactly it. I mean, you know, um, you know, what what they're basically saying right now is Hamas has more control, so we need to get in there and have more agency. Well, the more you vilify Israel, the more Hamas is going to be able to exploit this moment. So, you know, maybe just dial back on the vitriol right now, and maybe you can just go back to the status quo, which has been one that Jordan has enjoyed with cooperation from Israel for the last 50 something years. And that's been a good thing. Right. So I don't I don't get their strategy. All I can see is that they they really look like they're stepping on a rake. This is like one of those cartoons. Right. Where they keep like hurting themselves by by doing this. And I just I don't get it. I think, um, you know, look, I, I think the kingdom is in a tough spot. Um, they're dealing with COVID problems. They're dealing with economic problems. They're dealing with political problems. They've got a huge refugee issue. They've got internal issues besetting the kingdom where, you know, the king has actually got had open spats with um, with other members of the royal family stemming from, you know, allegations of corruption and mismanagement of the government. My advice for Jordan, put your own house in order, right? Before you start fanning the flames of a neighboring country that actually helps to ensure your own security. This is just, I, I mean, this seems logical to me. I don't know how it isn't logical to the Jordanians. And again, I, I think we all value their uh, the alliance that we share here in the United States with the Jordanians. But I think, if, you know, if, if someone at the State Department is, you know, is listening to this podcast, maybe it's time to just, you know, mention to the Jordanians that it's time to dial it back. It really is if if they want to keep things contained, if they don't want to see things escalate further than they already have. Yeah, it seems that Jordan, you know, thinks it can ride this tiger. I I I concur with both of your assessments on that. It's a it's an absolute mistake um, for them. them. Them fanning the flames only uh, increases the position of, of Hamas and, and other radical groups that does nothing to help the Jordanian regime. Joe, John, thanks again for a great discussion today. Uh, had a lot of fun and very informative. Uh, I, you know, I don't follow Israel-Palestinian uh, issues like you guys do. So every time you come on, uh, I learn something. So I can't thank you. Thanks, Bill. Great to be with you. Thank you yeah. And yeah, no, always a pleasure, gentlemen. Let's do it again soon. And uh, thanks everyone for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.